We have entered uh, into a, a season in the life of Christ Fellowship, what the Puritans would call a season of bitter providence. It was two weeks ago that um, uh, Betsy lost her husband and our friend, uh, Jerry Weaver. Uh, yesterday, we gathered together for a celebration of his life, and we not only honored Jerry, uh, but we, more importantly than honoring Jerry, we honored his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. On Wednesday, uh, Carmel uh, knocked on my door and told me that uh, my neighbor, uh, Bill Scales, had had a heart attack, Joan's husband. And so I rushed to the house to be with Joan, uh, met Chief Blankers there and several police officers and medics, and they had just taken Bill to the hospital, and he died on the way to the hospital. Uh, this morning, received an email at about 6, 630 um, and received word, and this is a real fresh one, this will be a shock to some of you, but uh, Diana Hansen uh, died uh, this morning. She had a, a massive heart attack, and so I had a chance to spend some time with, with Neil and, and uh, uh, Edith and, and Tim and Suzanne. As you might expect, uh, Neil is in shock, and uh, he's, he's hurting, uh, as Betsy has been hurting, and uh, Joan Scales as well. And so I think it would be appropriate uh, for us to uh, spend a moment now and have a word of prayer for these uh, friends. Uh, Father, these are uh, sobering uh, days as we are in a season of, of bitter providence. And God, the thought that uh, came to my mind as we were worshiping is, uh, do we believe what we believe? Do we really believe what we believe? Do we believe what we sing about? Do we believe what we read about? Do we really believe the gospel? Do we really believe the word of God? And as my thoughts uh, have run through and considered the people in this church, I think the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, we believe your word. We believe the gospel. We believe it is true. Uh, we live it as such. And so uh, we embrace your promises. We embrace your word. We recognize you as we just sang about a moment ago as the God of providence. We realize that you ordain everything that comes to pass uh, for your glory and for the good of your people. Uh, we continue uh, to pray for uh, Betsy as she grieves. We pray for Joan as she grieves the loss of her loved one. And most recently, we pray for, for Neil and also for his children and his grandchildren and the whole family. We pray for the families of all those represented, God, as they have lost loved ones and have been thrown into a season of turmoil and ask that the God of all comfort would be there for them in, in very special ways, that they would recognize the peace of God in, in perhaps ways they've never even experienced before. And so we cast ourselves upon you and your mercy and we ask that you would show your kindness to these dear friends and that as the body of Christ, we would uh, come around them, that we would gather around them to show uh, the love of Jesus during these difficult days. And now, Lord, as we open your word, uh, I pray that your spirit would uh, communicate truth to us. As I shared with Neil this morning that the topic of the sermon was Christ alone. I remember the song that I mentioned in Jerry's service yesterday, the cross has the final word. May these 
great truths echo in our minds and in our hearts. And may it result in, in praise that goes to you, the living God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. As you're turning to Acts chapter 4, I need to tell you about a brief conversation I had with Leona. I can quote you, right, Leona? And Leona uh, shook my hand and she said, Now, Pastor, I've seen the notes this morning and I don't want to hear any of this stuff about uh, finishing on time. And I thought, well, that's encouraging. And then Dan Newton says, and I'll second that. So put your watches away and let's do this. I promise I'll be sensitive. But I do not want Leona mad at me or Dan. We are in the middle of a study that we have entitled Always Reforming, The Marks of a Faithful Church. And in the course of this study, we have been examining the basis of our salvation, which is captured in five Latin phrases. Now, if these are new phrases to you, please do not let the Latin freak you out. Don't let the Latin intimidate you. I've even had a discussion with a few of the elders over the last several years of, do we keep the Latin or do we discard the Latin? Most of you know what my preference would be to keep the Latin. And I've been affirmed and encouraged to do that because these are great banners that have flown over our heads for over 500 years. The first banner that we looked at was the Latin phrase sola gratia. That means grace alone, that, that the basis of our salvation is by God's grace alone. And we just sang about that. And then last week we looked at sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. I remember talking with a good friend several years ago and he had a fascinating comment. It's one that I don't know if I've raised yet. He said, well, if it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, to God alone be the glory. Wait a minute, which alone is it? And I said, well, you need to think of the gospel like a diamond. There's only one diamond. And as we look at that beautiful diamond, as we turn it, and as we, we see the light shine upon this beautiful stone, I want you to see the five solas emerge from that diamond. Today we move to the third sola. It's one that the Latin should pose uh, no problems for any of you. We all know what the word sola means now. And so when I say sola Christus, most of us would be happy to announce that they understand that the English translation is Christ alone. Christ alone. And as I stood with my grieving friend this morning, as I stood in the hospital with Neil, who lost his wife only hours before, I said, as I mentioned in the prayer, Neil, I just want to tell you before I go that the subject of the sermon is sola Christus, Christ alone. I think that's an appropriate subject in light of what you're experiencing. And a big smile came across his face because Neil is a man who I think most of you know, if you know Neil, he's a man of unshakable faith. But even people of unshakable faith need the care and the love and the support of their church family. And so this is a great opportunity for us to show that love and care and concern. I want to have you this morning with your Bibles open, stand to your feet as we read a few verses from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. The context here is that Peter and John are standing before the council, and it's a, it's a very intimidating situation. 
we see in verse 2 that they have taught the people and were proclaiming that the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And the officials, to put it mildly, are extremely upset. And what happens is Peter and John are arrested. And as a result of their preaching, verse 4 tells us that uh, 5,000 people got saved. 5,000 people got saved. That's, that's almost half of Linden. Can you imagine? Now drop down to verse 10 and listen to the word of the Lord. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And may God bless the reading of his word. And you may be seated. Now, Martin Luther, a man who we have referred to a few times throughout the course of this series, and rightly so, he was at the, the fountainhead of the Protestant Reformation. He beautifully captures the Reformation's affirmation of Christ alone in a letter that he wrote to his supervisor, Johann von Staupitz. And here's what he said. Luther said, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone. Sola Christus. Not in their prayers, not in their merits, and certainly not in their good works. John Calvin summed it up like this. Calvin said that we see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. And what Calvin really meant was sola Christus, Christ alone. Now in our doctrinal statement here at Christ Fellowship, we have two sentences that have been crafted that reflect the Reformation banner that flies over our head that we're studying today that we refer to as sola Christus. Here's what the statement says. We believe that we are saved by Christ alone, who is fully God and fully man. Christ was our substitute who died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. What we have here are uh, two sentences that we need to unpack. And even as as Leona was giving me a hard time, you need to understand that uh, what you hold in your hands is the overview. You say, great, where is this going? This really, it truly is the, the overview. Because in two short sentences, we have packed a treasure chest of theological rea- reality that informs the Christian life and instructs the people of God in the proper path of salvation. Now, what I want to do this morning is, is to take our time and to unpack these two sentences. And I want to give you a brief overview by referring you to the notes. You look on page one and you'll see the first heading is the heading that we have referred to as the person of Christ. We'll take a few moments to unpack that. Look at page two. We move from the person of Christ to the work of Christ. 
And we'll take a few moments to unpack that. And finally, we want to wrestle with Acts 4.12 and take a moment to look at the exclusivity of Christ. Now, there are two kinds of people here today. First of all, there is the the non-believer. Some of you, and by the way, this is the way the Puritans preach, and this is the way that I preach, the Puritans and me always assume there are unconverted people in the pews. Always. It doesn't matter how many are in church. You always assume there are unconverted people. And so this morning, that's my assumption. And for those of you who who have never placed simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never confessed your sin to God and said, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge you to be the God-man, the Savior of the world who died on the cross. And on the third day, God raised you from the dead. And now you're seated at the right hand of God and you, you rule and reign victoriously. By the way, there are some schools of theology that say that Jesus will reign in the future during the millennium. Newsflash, Jesus is reigning now at the right hand of the Father. He does not have to wait for the final chapter for the reign to begin. Jesus is ruling majestically and triumphantly at the right hand of the Father. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, let me just say we're so glad you're here. Because in the next few minutes, you are going to hear some things that will absolutely blow your mind. You are going to hear some things that that you never dreamed possible. I shared a story a few weeks ago about a man that I met in Bellingham who had three Greek words tattooed on his arm. And when I told him that I recognized those words, he told me, yes, those three words were the words of Plato. And I said, I, I realized that. And then he went on to do his, his business on my car. When he came back, I shared with him this very important reality. I said, one of the Greek words on your arm is the, is the Greek word logos. And the Greek word logos appears, appears throughout the pages of the New Testament, but most notably in John chapter 1, verse 1, where John the Apostle says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And I said to him, do you realize that Jesus is the Logos? And he said, that's unbelievable. I've never heard that. I said, you want to hear something even more unbelievable? Did you know that Plato, who preceded the birth of Jesus Christ by several hundred years, he predicted that one day, by the way, this is a pagan philosopher. Plato predicted that one day a Logos would come and he'd make everything plain to us. I don't know about you, but every time I share that story, the the hair on my arms goes north. I mean, this pagan philosopher said one day a Lagos would come and he'd make everything plain. Do you know what happened? The pagan philosopher was right. The Lagos came and he made everything plain. In the beginning was the Lagos and the Lagos was with God and the Lagos was God. And so if you're an unbeliever this morning, you maybe you've already heard something. You say, wow, that blows my mind. I never knew that. That's, that's just an, that's an appetizer. The meal is coming and you will be blown away. You will be transfixed. You will just be, you'll be, you'll be flabbergasted. And the reason I share that story is this. For the few of you who are unbelievers who would be blown away, my, my view is that you would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you would walk out onto the street a brand new person. Your sins would be forgiven forever. 
Your guilt has been atoned for. You are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm also concerned for the vast majority of you who are followers of Jesus, who, who look at this outline, and this is the tendency. Oh, yeah, the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ. Yeah, this is one of those review sermons. It's one of those summary sermons. I think I got that down. Move on, Pastor. What I want to happen for the vast majority of you is you will be like every unbeliever this morning where we look at the person of Christ. We look at the work of Christ. We look at the exclusivity of Christ. And you say, wow, I learned about that when I was 11 years old in catechism. Wow. Because if you leave this morning with a humdrum attitude, oh, yeah, I learned that in catechism. I remember back when Chris Veldman taught those things, when he taught the Heidelberg Catechism, hum-de-dum-dum-dum. You will have not been served. And so my, my, my passion this morning, can you sense it? Can you feel it? Is that you would leave, wow, like you're at a Seahawks game, but way better. We get so excited about the Seahawks. And when I say turn to Acts 4, you're like, I have no idea where that's at. <laughs> or I've heard that before. I think I've heard that before. The person of work, person of Christ, the work of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ. I'm going to pound the pulpit today. I want to begin by pounding the pulpit by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And there are two broad things I want to say by way of introduction when we look at the person of Christ. The first is that Jesus Christ, and for those of you who are, are guests with us and you're not, you may not be a believer, this is one of the things that will blow you away. Jesus Christ was and is fully God. You know, there are people who want to see the face of God. And the response of the New Testament is, I would just be kind of curious. You don't need to raise your hand. Just ask yourself, have you ever said, I just wish God would show up to Walmart? You know, it's, it just, I just want to meet him, right? I'm convinced that if, if we heard that Jesus would be at Walmart, most people wouldn't show up, right? But if you want to know what God's like, just look at Jesus. Because Jesus was God and Jesus is God. Look at verse 10, Acts chapter 4. The apostles say, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel, but, but by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you as well. I want you to see this morning several things about this proposition that Jesus is fully God. And I want to take a moment to really play the role of an apologist. An apologist is someone who, who proves things who demonstrates things, who argues for the, the truth and the reality of something. And I want to assume that some of you are not convinced that Jesus is God, and I want to show you why it's true from the Word of God. Number one, I want you to see that the names of Jesus demonstrate that He is God. We see in the book of Revelation that Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the, the Almighty, the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We may or may not come back to Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation 22. And Lord willing, I'll show you an exercise that I do every time a Jehovah's Witness comes to my front door. And you can use these passages to help demonstrate who Jesus is. 
Acts chapter 3 verse 14 says that Jesus is the Holy One, which indicates that He is God. 1 Corinthians 2.8 calls Jesus the Lord of glory. In Titus chapter 2 verse 13, Paul refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. I want you to remember the next time someone who is from another religion says that Jesus is just another religious leader. He's just another ruler. He's just another figurehead. He's just another philosopher. Remember what Paul says, that Jesus is our great God and Savior. Now hold your finger in Acts 4 and turn back just a few pages to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And look at verse 28. Most of us believers and unbelievers are probably familiar with a man by the name of Doubting Thomas. I just want to ask a question just to make sure I understand who, who I'm talking with this morning. Why did they call him Doubting Thomas? Thank you, Tyler. Because he doubted, right? They called him Doubting Thomas because he doubted. And in verse 28, Thomas answered Jesus. He puts his hands on his wounds, on the wounds of Jesus from the crucifixion. And here's what he says, my Lord and my God. Now, to a typical American, that sounds very familiar because Americans are, and I've learned even in the church, have grown very accustomed to uttering three words. Oh, my, use your imagination, because I'm not going to utter the third one. Do you know that's a direct violation of Scripture? OMG, that's how we call it now in our age of technology. Something in the back of my mind saying, steal, be careful. No, I'm not going to be careful because OMG, you know what OMG is? It's a direct violation of Scripture. Oh, my, Thomas is not doing that here. This is not slang. This is not an expression. These are not words that he uses flippantly. He is saying, my Lord and my God. This is an act of worship. And so one of the things I tell you that, that my wife and me taught our children go, growing up is you don't utter the phrase, oh, my. The only time you utter the name God is when you talk to God, when you tell people about God, or when you worship him in all his holiness. And I hope that's a, that comes as a profound challenge to you this morning to never again type the three word, the three letters, OMG, or to never again utter that phrase, oh, my, in a way that is blasphemous and in a way that dishonors the holy God of Israel. And so the names of Jesus demonstrate that he is God. Secondly, I want you to see quickly that the attributes of Jesus demonstrate that he is God. I'll give you the brief overview. Do you realize that every attribute of God Jesus possesses? Every attribute of God Jesus possesses. I remember I wrote a, a short article several, several years ago before we moved to Everson on the omnipresence of Jesus. And I'll never forget receiving a knock on my door at church. And a dear friend, and he's my dear friend to this day, and we've worked it out since then, but he, he was upset that I had written on the omnipresence of Jesus. He says, Jesus isn't omnipresent. 
And it was a very short conversation. I don't say this proudly or arrogantly. I simply said to my good friend, who I just received an email from a few days ago, who, by the way, Jason, recommended that we sing a hymn called the Reformation Hymn, which we sang today. Isn't that interesting? He said to me, Jesus is not omnipresent. And I named him my name, and I said, if Jesus is not omnipresent, Jesus is not God. And he said, end of discussion. It was that quick. So we recognize that all of the attributes of God Jesus possesses. Jesus is eternal. You remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is immutable. That is, he, he is unchangeable. His attributes are unchangeable. His essence is unchangeable. His plans are unchangeable. His promises are unchangeable. Hebrews says it like this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's probably my, if, if you can have a favorite attribute of God, it's the attribute that theologians refer to as a seity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. And here's the definition. He finds his existence in himself. Say that. That's a heavy one. So if you're here this morning, you say, I've never heard that before. Realize that Jesus finds his existence in himself. He has always existed. He is the God uh, who possesses omnipotence. He has all power. He is a God who possesses omniscience. He, he knows everything. He has perfect knowledge of the past. He has perfect knowledge of the present. He has perfect knowledge of the future. And my passion this morning for you, my friends, is that your, your view of Jesus would be elevated. I think the typical Christian in America has a view of Jesus that is, is subpar. We have a view of Jesus as, as uh, the babe in the manger, and indeed he was a babe in the manger. We have a view of Jesus as, as the one who walked around in sandals and, and was a carpenter, and indeed he was a carpenter, and probably Rick walked around in sandals. Pretty cool. But we need to elevate our view of Jesus and see him as the, the majestic king of the universe who rules and reigns at the right hand of God. Number three, I want you to see that the offices of Jesus demonstrate that he is God. The Bible tells us that he is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things, so says Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ is, is the only one qualified to forgive sins. He is referred to as the judge. One of his offices that is so important is he grants eternal life. And who does he grant eternal life to? Everyone who turns from their sins and accepts what he has accomplished on the cross. Fourth, I want you to see that the claims of Jesus demonstrate that he is God. And have you turn and look with me to John chapter 8, the fourth gospel. John chapter 8, verse 58. And I will confess this is a bit of review. And I know you've heard this verse several times from me. It's actually one of my personal favorite verses in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus blew the minds of the religious leaders. He blew their minds when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what's so important to understand about those little words, I am, it's written in the present tense, which means this. And I believe these religious leaders understood the implications of this verse. 
When Jesus says, before Abraham, I am, he meant this. I have always existed. I exist today and I will exist to all eternity. Can you imagine? Can any of you say that? There isn't a human being alive who can say before Abraham, I am. But Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is God by this claim. Number five, I want you to see that his pre-existence demonstrates that he is God. Look quickly, and there's several verses that we could use here, but look in the book of Galatians. Galatians. The way I remember where Galatians is located, General Electric Power Company. That works great with high school students, I've learned, right? You guys like that? GEPS, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now think about this. The one who exists from all eternity. Now the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now that you have General Electric Power Company in your toolbox, turn over to the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians, we see several things, but most notably the preexistence of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, you say, wait a minute, who's him? By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The preexistence of Jesus helps demonstrate that he is God. I want to have you look at another passage at the end of the book of Matthew. I should have warned you, your fingers might get a little sore this morning. Matthew chapter 28. And in Matthew chapter 28, something very interesting happens in verse 9. Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. This is post-resurrection. Verse 9 says, Behold, Jesus met with them, the disciples, and he said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and what did they do? They, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And what has always fascinated me is that Jesus never refuses worship. If he were a mere man, he would have said, don't commit the sin of idolatry. Don't worship me. But here we see they fall at his feet and they worship him. And so I want you to see as we examine the person of Christ that Jesus Christ was and is fully God. Second, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is fully man. Jesus Christ is and continues to be fully man. Several things to bear out here. First, the Bible tells us that he was conceived as a fully human person. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was a real live person. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he is actually called a man. And we refer to Jesus, do we not, as the God-man. Yes, he's God, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. 
you need to understand that in church history, and I won't bore you with the details, but there, it's, it's like a, a continuum. There are some people who focus on the fact that Jesus is God, and indeed he is. And there are others who focus on the fact that he is man, and indeed he is. But if you embrace one to the exclusion of the other, you enter into a very dangerous theological ground. If my friend Frank were here today, it was so good to see Frank and Sandy yesterday. They've moved down to Skagit County. He was always so good to play along with me. I would say, Frank, is Jesus God or man? And Frank would, would someone like to just replace Frank for me? Is Jesus God or man? Yes. That's the answer. It's not either or. It's not man. It's not God. It's he is God and he is man. We see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus had upon his incarnation and continues to have a human body. But he was subject to limitations. I'm fascinated to study the the person of Jesus Christ and to see that he got hungry, like some of you are hungry right now. If you didn't get a cookie this morning or a muffin, you may be hungry. Jesus Christ himself experienced hunger and thirst like a normal human being. Jesus Christ experienced physical exhaustion. Those of you that work long hours, 40, 50, 60, even more hours a week, get exhausted when you come home. Jesus Christ, as a real man, experienced physical exhaustion. We see in Luke chapter 2 that he, he developed as a normal human being did. He grew lonely. John 12 says he had a human soul. And here's what's important for us to understand that Jesus, as a human being, he died. He died and he breathed his last. And of course, we know that three days later, God the Father miraculously and majestically raised Jesus from the dead. This is the person of Christ the first banner that we place, the first uh, broad category and heading we need to understand as we examine the Reformation doctrine of sola Christus. Number two, I want you to look with me at the work of Christ. The work of Christ. And I want you to look with me just for a few moments at the importance of the atonement. The importance of the atonement. There are four theological terms that show how Jesus' death meets our needs as sinners. And I want to just just give a brief uh, disclaimer and maybe a bit of a warning is like I do from time to time, I'm going to skim the rock over the surface of the waters this morning. Each one of these words bears hours and hours and hours. Indeed, a whole lifetime of unpacking the implications. And so by way of overview, look at these four very important words. The first word is the word sacrifice. Sacrifice. When you think of atonement, I want to encourage you to think sacrifice. That is, we deserve to die because of our sin. This is the reason that you've heard me say often when someone asks me how I'm doing better than I deserve. The fact is, I deserve to die because of my sin. You deserve to die because of your sin. But the word of God says in Hebrews 9 verse 26... For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, speaking of Jesus, at the end of the ages to put away sin. Think about that. 
Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The second word to meditate on is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. That is, we, apart from grace, are enemies of God and we are separated from God because of our sin. That's the condition that we are in apart from grace. Isaiah 59 says it clearly. It says, your iniquities, that is your sin, has made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That tells me that if an unconverted person prays for help from God, God says something like this. What what was that? I didn't hear that. Why? Because... That person has not been reconciled to God. That person is unreconciled and needs to be reconciled to God. Ephesians chapter 4 and Lord willing in the month of November, we will move through a verse by verse exposition of Ephesians. But Ephesians 2 says it like this. He himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace who has made He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Say, what does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ has bridged the gap between sinners and a holy God and made a way for sinners and God to be reconciled. The third word is the word redemption. The word redemption. That is, we are slaves because of our sin. Jesus said in the Gospels, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free... You will be free indeed. We see the beauty of redemption in Colossians chapter 1, where the word of God tells us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There's a fourth word I want you to see and be familiar with, and it's the word propitiation. The first three words, I think, as Americans, we're pretty familiar with. Sacrifice, redemption, reconciliation. The fourth one is when we don't hear an awful lot. In fact, it only occurs four times in the New Testament. But it's a very important word. Propitiation simply means the turning away of wrath by an offering. The turning away of wrath by an offering in the new testament here's what we find we find that god himself provides the means of removing his wrath and i want to stop and just throw in a footnote and it's it's a footnote i've shared with you many many times before and i it's as if i'm growing more and more concerned because the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is being discarded by more and more people these days. I can't tell you the number of books I've read over the last five years of 
Christian authors who are discounting or denying or marginalizing or utterly repudiating the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. In the New Testament, we find that God himself provides the means of removing his wrath. If we don't believe that God is a God of wrath, there is no need for the gospel. If God is not an angry God, there is no need for gospel. There is no need for propitiation. And we find the only way this is accomplished is through the substitute Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ stands in as my substitute. Jesus Christ stands in as Kyle's substitute. You know, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies for specific people, not in generalities. Jesus had you in mind. If Jesus paid the price for your sin, you can put your name on the cross. He died specifically for you. It's an amazing reality that Jesus Christ becomes our propitiation as he satisfies the righteous demands of the law and he cools down the white-hot wrath of the Father. This is the way I remember propitiation. When you think of propitiation, Jesus does two things. He affirms the love of the Father and he absorbs the wrath of the Father. My friend and mentor, Pastor Wayne Pickens, used to say it like this. Jesus takes the hit. Kyle, he took the hit for you. He took the hit for me. He took the hit for Gary. He took the hit for Pat. He took the, sin, he took the hit for every person who would ever believe. He is your propitiation. John Owen says, in Christ, God has shown his righteousness. He has shown, he has showed that it was impossible for his justice to be turned away from sinners without propitiation. A victim who would suffer in the place of sinners, so satisfying divine justice and so turning away God's wrath on sinners. And the people of God say, glory to God. Why? Because I deserve to pay for my sin. And so sacrifice, reconciliation, redemption, And propitiation, these four words beautifully summarize what took place when Jesus died for our sins on Calvary's cross. As our statement says, Christ was our substitute who died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. So we've seen two headings. We've seen the person of Christ. We've seen the work of Christ. And now I want to get controversial. I want to look at the exclusivity of Christ and have you look with me at three very important realities. First, our certainty about the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you wander around in our culture in in the 21st century, as you go to coffee shops, as you spend time at your place of employment, you will find that more and more people are skeptical about the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to go back with me to Acts chapter 4. And there may be some numbered among you this morning who, who struggle as well with the exclusive truth claims of Jesus. And you say things like, what, what about Buddha? What about Vishnu? What about Shiva? What about some of these other deities of other world religions? What about leaders like Joseph Smith? What do you do with a leader like Mary Baker Eddy? Well, 
Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says it like this. And there is salvation in no one else. Does that sound exclusive? That's really exclusive. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given unto heaven, under heaven among, among men by which we must be saved. That is to say, no other deity, so-called deity, can save. All the other so-called deities are impostors. Do you know how controversial it would be for me to say this today, that Joseph Smith was an imposter? you know how controversial it is to say that Vishnu and Shiva, two of the, the multitudes of deities in Hinduism, are imposters? How controversial is it to say that Allah... Do I dare say it? Is an imposter. These are false gods. Why? Because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What are the implications? If Christ is an exclusive Savior, all other ways of salvation are excluded. And so choose your world religion. If Jesus is the exclusive Savior, and I want to catch myself, it's not if Jesus is the exclusive Savior. Someone help me. Shout it out. Yes, since he is the exclusive Savior, all other world religions are cast aside. They are regarded as worthless. And you say, now you're really getting exclusive. The reason we're exclusive is because the Bible's exclusive. The reason we're exclusive is that Jesus Christ is exclusive. Then I want you to look for a moment at our challenge in presenting the exclusivity of Christ. Our challenge amounts to this, is that there, there is great confusion in our postmodern world about who Jesus Christ is. One writer says this. He says, most people find it impossible to believe in the objective truths and the ultimate concerns of a Christian worldview. They just can't do it. Their mind can't wrap around the idea that there's only one way to heaven. And so there's not only confusion about the Lord Jesus Christ, there's great skepticism concerning the nature of his exclusivity. And I want to make it really easy for you. Sometimes I've been told, you're a bit of a simpleton. You, you think like a child. What a compliment, right? Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us there's salvation in no one else. If you're banking on anyone else or any other world religion, you're wasting your time. Jerrine and I were watching a show last night, and I never made mention of it, but it was a really fascinating show. I mean, we were just... We were amazed, and I don't know how many times this individual who is surviving alone in Alaska said, if I'm lucky, I'll catch what I need to catch so that I can survive. If I'm lucky, the weather will turn. If I'm lucky, and so banking your hope on luck is about as smart as baking your hope on Vishnu or Shiva or Joseph Smith or Muhammad or Allah. Finally, our charge to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ. See, the reformers in the Roman Catholic Church, you might be surprised by this, agreed that Christ's exclusive identity as God the Son incarnate. They agreed on that. 
The reformers in, in Rome agreed about Christ's exclusive identity as God the Son incarnate, and they continue to believe that to this day. But Rome and the reformers disagreed on the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. Stephen Wellam writes, Roman Catholic theology separated the believer from Christ. And I want to stop there and ask you and challenge you, because that, that's a very offensive statement. That, that would be, and I have Roman Catholic friends who would say that's offensive when Stephen Wellam says Roman Catholic theology separated the believer from Christ. Ask yourself, how do they separate the believer from Christ if they do? And listen to the answer. They separated the believer from Christ by inserting the church in the seven sacraments as the means by which God applies his grace to us. Christ's death paid for our original sin but our present and future sin is forgiven by a combination, that's the key word, by a combination of Christ's work and the sacraments, which infuse grace into us as applied by the church through its priests. You see, Rome holds to the exclusivity of Christ, but it fails to emphasize the sufficiency of his work, especially Christ alone is the sole ground of our justification that is to be received by grace alone through faith alone. Martin Luther's good friend, Philip Melanchthon, said this, When we say that we are justified by faith, we are saying nothing else than that for the sake of the Son of God, we receive remission of sins and are accounted as righteous. Period. Not faith plus works, not faith plus the sacraments, but here's what Melanchthon believed, here's what Luther believed, here's what Calvin believed, here's what Christ's fellowship believes, and I trust that all of you believe it, sola Christus, Christ alone. Paul does an amazing job helping model what this proclamation looks like. At the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, we read this, that Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I don't know about you, but I have friends that I need to say more to them about Jesus. Are any of you like that? You have friends who... They might not even know you're a believer or you have friends that they know you go to Christ fellowship. But that's about as far as it goes. And I know I have friends. I have friends that I've known for years who they know I'm a Christian. They know I'm a pastor, but there comes a time when a line needs to be drawn in the sand. Is it not Mr. Nims where the line is drawn in the sand and we sit down with our friend and we say, man, I love you. And I know I share with you a long time ago about the claims of Jesus Christ. I just wanted to follow up and ask you where you stand with God. Because the fact is you're getting older. And I could tell them that I've had three friends die in the last two weeks. And it's important for me to know where you stand with God, where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have a massive problem, I believe, in the New Testament church. It's a problem that we need to come to terms with. It's a problem that I believe is unique to our community. Many of you will know what I mean in a moment. 
It's a problem that suggests that we can come to a holy God with our works. It's a problem that suggests we can come to a holy God by saying, I give 10% of my income. It's a problem that suggests that I am righteous in and of myself. It's a problem that says that sinners can be saved by what they do, and it's, it's a lie that needs to be confronted. I know many of you have gone through Chris Veldman's Heidelberg Catechism class. I remember when we candidated, Chris telling me that he taught the Heidelberg Catechism, and I think it's the first time I danced as a Baptist. I thought that was so cool that the Heidelberg Catechism is being taught in a Baptist church. But the Heidelberg Catechism brings us back where we need to be. Question number one, and I thought about having one of the young people come up and just just spit out the answer, but I didn't want to embarrass anyone. Here's question number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? You know what many people in our community, how they would answer that? They would say, I go to church. I give 10% of my income. I'm involved in Awana ministry. I'm involved in Royal Rangers. I'm involved in teaching Sunday school. I'm the church librarian. I'm a trustee. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I go to church four times a week. I go to church eight times a week. I go to church 12 times a week. Who cares? Right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's really frustrating for a preacher when the author of the Heidelberg Catechism can summarize two sermons that took me two hours to preach in a few sentences. That is beautiful. It's beautiful. Dr. Stephen Wellam says, to affirm Christ alone in all of his uniqueness and sufficiency is life. But to affirm anything else, anything else, anything else, is ultimately a compromise of the gospel. So whenever you say faith and, whenever you say faith plus, whenever there's a comma after faith, you know you're talking about a false gospel. We are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ alone. A young woman who was born in 1841 captures the essence of Sola Christus in her hymn titled The Advocate. Do you know that all of you, I think most of you at least, have heard The Advocate but didn't realize? I see I don't even, Jason shaking his head and I'm not even looking at him because I know he knows where I'm going with this. She wrote the hymn when she was 21 years of age. And the words go something like this. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lies and and lives and pleads for me. His name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. 
I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And there's this line. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. One in himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. My, with Christ, my savior and my God. Sola Christus. We believe that we are saved by Christ alone, who is fully God and fully man. Christ was our substitute who died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. And I want to repeat the affirmation I prayed just several moments ago. Do you believe what you believe? Or do we, we parrot empty words? Do we really believe what we believe? Because if we believe what we believe, when one of our loved ones departs and they have placed their faith in Christ, we are filled, as we learned yesterday, with grief. But our hearts are also overwhelmed by joy because we know that our loved ones are with the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping him and delighting in him. And satisfied in him. And one day when Jesus returns, our loved ones will receive new bodies and will dwell for all eternity on the new earth. My challenge on this day is, do you really believe what you believe? Do you really believe the gospel? Do you, have you internalized it? Have you banked on it? Are you trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, what he accomplished on Calvary's tree? Let's pray together. O Sola Christus, Father, what a, an amazing uh, banner that uh, flew over Wittenberg, over Worms, even over Vortburg, over the city of Geneva. And now these banners that hung prominently in Western Europe not only fly all around the world and fly above Thousands and thousands and thousands of churches, they fly above our church. For we embrace the truth and reality of Sola Christus. God, we confess that in and of ourselves, we cannot please God. We will never merit favor with God. There's nothing that we could say or do to earn his favor. We bank on Jesus and Jesus alone. For there is no other name given unto heaven by which men can be saved. May we believe what we really believe. And if someone's here who is hearing these things for the first time, would you, would you do a mighty work of grace in someone's heart? Would they cast aside religion? Would they cast aside works-based righteousness? And would they simply come to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, take my sin, cover my sin, forgive my sin. I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, cast all my hope and future exclusively on you and my my word for the day is sola Christus in Christ and in Christ alone.
Amen.